invite you to open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We'll be spending most of our time in this passage tonight. Good to see all of you. Hope you've had a restful afternoon. On May the 8th, 1886, Dr. John Pemberton sold the first glass of Coca-Cola at Jacob's Pharmacy in downtown Atlanta. And this newly created fountain beverage you could purchase for a nickel. Now, at that time, there was only one option when it came to this drink, Coca-Cola. That's it. There were no other choices by this brand, by this company. There were no other choices made available by Dr. Pemberton's science and engineering. There was no Diet Coke. There was no Cherry Coke. Coke Zero, whatever that is, you had one choice. Ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. You remember that commercial that Coca-Cola came out with a long time ago? You had one choice. But today, the Coca-Cola brand, the company has over 200 specific brands under its ownership. And with those 200 plus brands, there are literally thousands of beverage options. You can mix and match. You can get Diet Coke and mix it with Coke with lime, and you can mix it with vanilla Coke and Coke Zero, and you can do all kinds of things with these choices. Now, in most parts of the country, every region has its own unique way of talking about these fountain beverage options. Regardless of the brand affiliation, whether it's a Coca-Cola product or whether it's a Pepsi product, which is a product of the Carolinas, by the way, if you didn't know that, no matter what specific brand of soda or fountain beverage you're talking about, depending on where you live in the country, you call them by one term. So in the Midwest and in the West, they call it pop. It doesn't matter if it's Coke or if it's a Pepsi product or if it's a root beer or whatever, it's, it's all just pop, right? Or if you live in California or the Northeastern US, they call it soda. Of course, in the South, every beverage is called Coke. <laughs> Hang with me. Come on. Stay with the illustration. All right. Sweet tea's not carbonated. All right. In the South, you've got all of these thousands of drink choices, but all of them we commonly refer to as Coke. So you've had this conversation before. Hey, I'm thirsty. I'm going to go get a drink. You want something? Yeah, just get me a Coke. Well, yeah, but what kind? 
only one of these choices, of the umpteen thousands of beverage choices that you can get, only one of them is the authentic Coca-Cola. I used to say the original Coca-Cola, but then somebody said, well, you know what they used to put in that stuff, right? See, it's not the original. You're right. And if you don't know what they used to put in Coca-Cola, Google it. So it's not exactly the same recipe. It's a little different. But only one choice is Coca-Cola. When you go to the restaurant and you order your drink and they give you the cup and you walk over to the beverage station and they have that wretched touchscreen machine, you've done this, right? And you've got in front of you 29,000 drink choices and you're overwhelmed. You don't know what to do. And then to make matters worse, there's this little bratty kid in front of you who wants to mix 17 drinks all together. He's taking forever and you're ready for him to move on. You've been there. Now, why am I talking about this? I want to suggest to you that what we have done with Coca-Cola, by just taking all of these beverage options and lumping them in together and just calling it Coke, what we have done to Coca-Cola, we have also done to Christianity. In the first days after Jesus' resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven, when the apostles were going out and they were preaching the gospel of Christ, in those early days, there was one Christianity. There was no diet Christianity. There was no Christianity with lime. There was certainly no Christianity zero. There was one original choice. But now, researchers tell us that there are over 30,000 different denominational affiliations in Christianity, in Christendom at large. There are just as many Christian branches of the tree. There are just as many Christian beverages of choice as there are Coke. And so we look at all of these religious choices around us and we say, well, it's all Christian. It's all Coke. So what are we to do with this? Is every person who claims some belief in Jesus to be considered a Christian? In this world, and in your own circle and sphere of influence, there are many good people who are devout people, who are believers in Jesus. Their lives are honest and dignified. 
They are trying to serve God. And it's easy for us to speak in this kind of a generic way and say, oh, that's a Christian. And when we say that, what we are saying, whether implicitly or clearly, we are saying that they are approved of God, that they are a part of the body of Christ, that they are accepted by God as his child. But the Coca-Cola company defines what Coca-Cola is. You can't take a Pepsi and try to pass it off as a Coca-Cola. Anybody who has a discerning palate could immediately tell the difference. If they know what Coca-Cola tastes like, if they know what the true beverage is, they can taste, that's Pepsi. We can't pass off something else as Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola defines what Coca-Cola is. It's their recipe. And in just the same way, God has defined what makes a Christian. In the pages of the New Testament, we have explicitly clear teaching from God about who a Christian is and who a Christian is not. And so there are many people around us who have not biblically responded to the gospel. Maybe because they've been misled by some preacher or perhaps for some other person or some other reason, but they have not done the things that the New Testament says they must do in order to become a child of God. So what do we do with such people who are good, honest, devout, dedicated, sincere people, and yet they've not done what the New Testament teaches that they must do in order to become a Coca-Cola Christian. Don't latch on to that phrase, by the way. Don't go around saying, you know, hey, are you a Coca-Cola Christian? Humor my illustration, right? Stay with me. You and I use this phrase a lot, a New Testament Christian. Is that person a New Testament Christian? And I know exactly why we use that terminology. But you know what's interesting about that? The New Testament doesn't use that language. The New Testament doesn't speak like that. But we have taken that language in an effort to push back and sharpen the definition because the world looks at it and says, Coke. Everybody who has some connection to Jesus, some belief in Jesus, everybody is a Christian. And so we push back and we say, well, yeah, but are they a New Testament Christian? 
let me get on a little bit of a side track here along that line. I think we need to be careful about adding adjectives to things. And I don't just mean this idea of being a New Testament Christian, which I, I still say that myself. Okay? I'm not putting down that usage. But, but in, our, in our political and cultural uh, discussions today, we hear people talk about this. Well, we need to defend traditional marriage. Listen, we gotta stop talking like that. We need to defend marriage. We don't need to add another adjective to it. Anything that's not that is not marriage. It's something different. We don't need to defend traditional marriage. We need to defend marriage. Or we hear this a lot. Well, we need to support biological women. What other kind of woman is there? Is there some other kind? No, we need to defend women. We need to defend females. So let's do that. So let's talk about Christian. Now, get back to the subject at hand. Tonight, I want us to talk about a classic example of someone in the Bible who is described in much the same way as you would describe your friends and neighbors who have not biblically responded to the gospel. We're talking about Cornelius tonight, and I'm sure this is familiar territory to you, but I think it is good for us to go back and think about these accounts again and again. I think there's so much for us to learn from Cornelius and his conversion as we think about people around us in the broader religious world and how we should interact with them. So begin with me in chapter 10, and let's start talking about the character of this man as he is presented to us by Luke. Acts 10 and verse 1. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. He is a soldier in the Roman army. He is a centurion. He is the leader of a hundred soldiers. You see that in the word centurion. A century is a hundred years. A centurion is a leader of a hundred soldiers. This man is clearly a Gentile. That becomes obvious throughout the rest of the chapter, but we see this in verse one. He's in the Roman army. He is a Gentile soldier. But notice how he is described in verse two. He is called a devout man. This word is used only three times in the New Testament. Twice it's used here in Acts chapter 10. It's used again in verse seven, and it is used in 2 Peter chapter two and verse nine. And there it's translated by the word godly. Cornelius is a man who is pious in his behavior. He is a righteous man who is sincere in his beliefs. And his uprightness is motivated by what's said of him next in verse two, that he is one who feared God. He is a God-fearing man. We, we talked about this a little bit this morning. He is not a fearer of the gods, like pagan people would be described. He is a fearing man of the God of Israel. He is, the, he is fearful of the God of the Jews. And this is the foundation of everything else that is said about this man. It says that he feared God with all of his household. He was teaching his family to honor and respect God. 
In verse 2, it says that he gave many alms to the Jewish people. He was very generous with his money. And in verse 2, it says that he is someone who prayed to God continually. He had a regular, consistent prayer life, praying to the God of heaven. And I suggest that this is part of how he taught his household. His children saw him at regular intervals of prayer. It's interesting that in verse 3, it says about the ninth hour of the day, Cornelius clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? Now, notice what the angel says to this Gentile. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. God heard this man's prayers. God accepted the liberality of his giving. God acknowledged his generosities. An angel of God has come to say, God hears your prayers. God sees your acts of service. Later in verse 21, Cornelius is described in verse 21 and 22 by his servants. He is a righteous, God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews. All of the Jewish people in that area know who Cornelius is and they have high regard for him. That alone is astounding. What Gentile would deserve this kind of respect from the Jews? Very few. But the Jews in that region know who Cornelius is, and they respect him. Cornelius is the kind of man who I think does a couple of things that we need to think about. Number one, he indicts me if I'm not living before God as I ought to be. If I am not the man that God needs me to be and wants me to be, then Cornelius indicts me and says, you better get your act together. But Cornelius is the kind of guy that we would say, hey, we need him in our church. Look at this man. He is, he is righteous and he is teaching his children and he is prayerful and generous. We need this man in our church. Problem. Cornelius is not a Christian. Described in all of these tremendous ways as he is, Cornelius is not a Christian. He doesn't yet know what he needs to know and what he needs to do. And so the story of Acts chapter 10 is how God is going to bring together the man who needs the message, Cornelius, and the man with the message, the apostle Peter. Cornelius is doing the things that Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask, 
and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Cornelius is doing that. And so God in this chapter is going to make sure that Cornelius has an opportunity to know the truth of the gospel. So let's talk about his conversion. Let me summarize what you probably know about already. So an angel that visited Cornelius up in verse three, which we read about a moment ago, tells him to send some servants to Joppa, a nearby city, because there is a man there whose name is Peter. And so Cornelius sends those men to Peter, and while those men are on their way to retrieve Peter, Peter has a vision from God. He sees this object coming down out of the sky. It's described as this great sheet. And inside this sheet are all kinds of living creatures. And a voice speaks to Peter and says, stand up, kill these animals and eat them. Now, Peter says, Lord, I can't do this. Those are unclean animals. I've never eaten an unclean animal at any point in my life. I'm not going to do that. And the voice says to him, I have cleansed these animals. Don't you call them unclean. It's okay, Peter. Go ahead. Do as I've instructed you. And Peter has this same vision three times. God repeats himself three times. And while Peter is thinking about this, Here's a knock on the door. These servants who've been dispatched from Cornelius have come and they have announced, Peter, you've got to come with us. And the Holy Spirit has already said to Peter, listen, some men are about to knock on the door. And when they do, go with them. I've sent these men to you, so go with them. So, Verse 24, on the following day, he entered Caesarea, that is Peter. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped him. We might be inclined to stop right there and think, see, there's that old pagan ways coming out again, falling down at Peter's feet, worshiping him as if he's one of the gods. I don't think that's what's happening here. I want to tell you, if I had seen what Cornelius had seen, an angel of God came to me and said, you don't have everything you need. So send messengers to the man who will come and tell you everything that you need. And while Cornelius has been searching and wanting to do the right things, he's just been told by an angel that he's missing an important piece to the puzzle. So now he's excited. 
He's anxious. He's ready for Peter to come and fill in this missing piece. And so Peter In verse 26, he says, stand up, I too am just a man. And as he talked with him, he entered and he found many people assembled. While Cornelius was waiting for Peter's arrival, Cornelius goes out and extends gospel meeting invitations. Notice the things that it says. Verse 24, Cornelius called together his relatives and his close friends. This is not just a message for me. I want my family to hear about this. I want other people whom I love to know what Peter is going to say. And then in verse 27, as Peter comes in, it says he sees many people assembled together. Cornelius did not just go find two or three people. He invited many people to come and hear what Peter has to say. And so Cornelius says in verse 33, as he is explaining this vision from the angel and everything that has happened, he says, so I sent for you immediately and you've been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. We preachers love verse 33, don't we, David? Terrell, we love to just wax eloquently on verse 33 and talk about this audience that is excited to hear the word of God. Look at the heart that Cornelius possesses. Peter, whatever you have to say, it comes from God and I wanna hear it. Whatever you say, I am ready to do it. I sent for you immediately. And all of us are here so that we can listen to what you have to say. So verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Peter understands the point of the vision that he saw three times. Peter, get up, kill, eat those animals. Lord, those are unclean animals. I have cleansed them. Do not call them unclean. And then Peter comes into the house full of unclean people, sent there by God, directed by the Holy Spirit to go with those men. And he comes in and he sees a room full of Gentiles and he says, I get it. These people are not unclean. God sent me here because they need the gospel too. And so as Peter preaches, beginning at verse 36, When he comes to the conclusion of his preaching, in verse 47, Peter says, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Cornelius 
has been seeking God, has been living before God with great piety and devotion and righteousness. But Cornelius didn't have everything he needed. He was close. He was knocking on the door, but he wasn't quite there. One of the amazing things about the book of Acts is the stories like this one, where God goes to great lengths to bring together people who need the message and those who have the message. In Acts chapter 8, there was a man riding in a chariot out in the desert. And God directed Philip the evangelist, who was in Samaria, having a fruitful work, converting lots of people there. God says, I want you to leave that fruitful area, and I want you to go out to the middle of the desert, because there's one man. (laughs) That doesn't make much sense, does it? Why would we leave this fruitful field where we're having a lot of success, converting a lot of people, to go and seek after one man? But that's what God does. Because that one man is searching. In Acts chapter 9, you have Saul of Tarsus. And he is an enemy of God's people. And yet God knows that he can be used to do great things. And so when Jesus appears to Saul of Tarsus and Saul's spirit is broken because now he sees what he has done, he knows that he is lost, God says, Ananias, go talk to him. Go teach him. Bringing together the man who needed the message and the man who had the message. See, being a Christian, the New Testament says, is much more than just being a believer. It's much more than being a believer in Jesus. And you know passages like James 2 and verse 19 that says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. Even the demons of Satan believe in Jesus. The problem is they don't serve Jesus. Or how about this one in Acts chapter 19? Flip over just a few pages. Acts chapter 19. This passage has always made me laugh. It's it's fascinated me. Paul is in Ephesus during the third missionary journey, and he is exorcising, not exorcising. Okay, he's not running. He's not on the treadmill. He's exorcising. He's casting out demons. And there are some Jewish people there who see what Paul is able to do, and they say, hey, that's pretty cool. I think we could do that. So they start going up to people who are filled with demons, and they start saying, demons, come out. I, I urge you, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of these people. And the demons talk back to these Jewish men. If you look at Acts 19 and verse 15, the evil spirit answered them and said, 
I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? (laughs) I know who Jesus is, the demon says. I know who the apostle Paul is. I don't know who you are, meaning I'm not going to listen to you. Cornelius was much more than a believer. He was godly, he was sincere, and I like this phrase that Acts 10 uses. He is a God-fearing man. That expression tells me a lot more than the word believer. But Cornelius hadn't been saved. As pervasive as the word Christian is in our world today, you know, Coke, it's only used three times in the New Testament. Acts chapter 11, verse 26, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Acts 26 and verse 28, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And then 1 Peter 4, 16, if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. So, what do we do? With those men and women in our circle and sphere of influence who are God-fearing people, what do we do with them? Do we just look at all of them and say, Coke, Christian? When we know that so many of them have not biblically responded to the gospel. I think what we have to do is go and be Peter. We need to talk to them. We need to try to reach them. We need to go and be Peter. We have great opportunities with them to to try and talk to them and teach them further. But we have to understand that God defines what a Christian is. And as we interact with all of these friends and neighbors, we can be the ones who guide them to the truth of the gospel. As Aquila and Priscilla in Acts chapter 18 guided Apollos into a more perfect understanding of the truth, so too you and I can do that. Maybe these people in our lives are searching. Maybe they are asking some questions about some things that they have seen in their church or or, or among their church-going friends who, who worship with them Maybe they have questions 
that you can point them to the Bible's answer. You can be Peter. Yeah, but Ben, if I do that, if I go to them and I tell them, I'm worried that you've been misled, that, that you have not biblically responded to the gospel, I, Ben, if I do that, that's just gonna damage that relationship. I, I, I might offend them, I might lose that friendship. And I might even lose it forever. You might. You very well might. But you might gain a new brother or sister in Christ. How can we ever know that unless we try? If you're my friend, tell me the truth. If I'm sick and I'm not feeling well and I go to the doctor, I want the doctor to tell me the truth. I don't want the doctor to come in and pat me on the back and say, hey, everything's fine. I know you feel like your insides wanna be on your outsides, but actually everything's okay. I want him to tell me the truth. Even if it hurts, even if it offends me, tell me the truth. So I encourage you, read this story, read it often. Think about the people in your life who are like Cornelius and think about the opportunities that you have to be Peter. Now, can I end my sermon with a confession? Visiting preacher is going to give a confession at the end. I need to do better at this personally. I need to do better at this. I suspect we all do. So let's encourage each other to do better. Thank you for your attention tonight. I appreciate the way you've listened so well today. I look forward to the rest of this week. There may be someone here tonight who is like Cornelius and you've been searching. You've been reading your Bible. You've been praying to God, asking that he would open doors of your understanding. There are answers to your questions. We can open our Bibles. We can read what God has said about how you might become a child of God. And if you don't know what you need to do, there are people here who would love nothing more than to sit down with you with an open Bible and point you to scriptures and show you what the Bible says. Can we help you with that? Or do you need to come back to the Lord, having turned away from him and gone back into the world? Can we encourage you tonight to do right? Don't leave this place without making your soul right with the Lord. Can we help you? If we can, please come forward now as we stand and sing together.